podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the latest edition of ESSR feature here on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet podcasting channel. I'm your host this week, Stephen Wilson, and we are going back in time once again. Yes, we're going to look back at another pay-per-view from days gone by. This week, we'll be taking things a little bit extreme as we look back on the 2011 edition of the WWE pay-per-view Extreme Rules, back when every match was extreme, as opposed to the current format of the pay-per-view, where you maybe get two matches out of maybe seven that are extreme. So yeah, this is one of the better editions of this particular pay-per-view. I'm joined by two panellists for this particular show who, if you've listened or watched any of our content, are one of the greatest feuds in the history of Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. You think of the great... uh, competitors in anything. You've got Superman and Lex Luthor, Batman the Joker, Dwight and Jim. But when you get these two boys on a pop world dance floor, they become Stavros Flatley. David Hotley and Scott McLeod are with me here. <laughs> oh, Stavros Flatley be Christ. I never thought I'd get that reference. Well, I think the most accurate thing I've ever heard in a long time is comparing Dave to Dwight Schrute. I imagine in a workplace environment, he is very much like Dwight. I mean, I would love to like put David Staple in a bit of jelly, you know, <laughs> and um, have him introduce me every every time I go to the toilet at, at these parties. You should have him do it at the wedding, just people coming in, just have him announce people. <laughs> hey, make it like, hey, if I was to announce somebody though, you know, I'd do it proper Ricardo Rodriguez style. You know, <laughs> I maybe may not be the position I want to be in, but my God, I'll give it my all. I mean. You have quite an important part of this wedding, David. If you don't want to be that one, there's a big queue of people waiting to take you completely off place. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I said I'll, I'll do it. I'll, absolutely, I will do it. <laughs> so, yeah, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about Extreme Rules 2011. But before we get into just the usual bit of housekeeping, uh, if you've never subscribed to it before, this is the first thing you listen to us, please hit that subscribe button on your podcast of choice, podcast network of choice, sorry. Uh, we're on them all, so if you've used many, Subscribe to us on all of them. Why not? Help boost the numbers. We don't make any money. It's just nice to see the bit of ticks every now and again. Uh, and you can also find us on YouTube. We do put content up on there as well. And we are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. Now, if you've listened to any of these look-back shows that I've hosted, I like to do a bit of On This Day for these particular shows. And the On This Day for May 1st, 2011 is pretty interesting. Now, Top of the UK box office at this particular point in time was a Marvel film. Can any of you two guess what Marvel film this was? Oh, I'll say it's Thor, maybe. I think it's he. No, that, that ten. Uh, I'm pretty sure that and Captain America. No, I think Captain America, uh, America came out the same year. So I, Captain I America First Thor. Avenger. Well, Scott was right. It was four. Oh, okay. Okay. It was his first week at the top of the box office, making $5.45 million. Uh, Dave, this will please you. Uh, top of the UK singles chart for the second week was LMFAO's Party Rock Anthem. Yes, legendary song. 
For him, oh, what a year for music, eh? For him, that doesn't know David Hockney, there was a, a night two years after this where we went to the <laughs> old O2 ABC club. They started playing this song, and at the point they go, the song goes, every day I'm shuffling, the DJ switched, and Dave was raging. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that, I was fuming. It was something to behold. And, of course, if you watch this particular pay-per-view and watch the fallout of this particular pay-per-view, well, what happened after the camera stopped rolling, you'll know that the American military were successful in an operation in Afghanistan to kill Osama bin Laden, announced to the world by Barack Obama, US President, and John Cena, for all those people <laughs> who were in attendance for this pay-per-view. They didn't get to see Obama say it. No, they had... You know, the second most important American wrestler of all time behind Cody Rhodes, John Cena. I mean, I've heard of sending the crowd home happy, but I didn't think they'd go to something so extreme. I was I was raging because I forgot this was something that they just showed on online exclusive, and I was waiting till the end of this show. I was like, wait for it, wait for it. Oh, he doesn't do it here. So disappointing. You know, I, I, I wanted to see that moment where the crowd just go mad. It's one of the weirdest things ever. It's like, Claire. Osama Bin Laden is dead. <laughs> I beat the Miz. <laughs> and John Morrison. Oh. And the Miz. Uh, so yeah, this more onto the pay-per-view. It took place in the, C- the St. Pete's Times Forum. That's a tongue twist and a half. In Tampa, Florida. Uh, 10,000 uh, fans attended this particular show with a buy rate. Yes, this is pre-WWE Network, this show of 209,000, which was up on the year before's 182,000, but well down on WrestleMania 27's 1.06 million. Uh, this arena is home to the NHL uh, outfit, the Tampa Bay Lightning. It's now known as the Emil Arena, after Emil Oil purchased the naming rights for it. And it also hosted two past WWE pay-per-views, or well, past now, do you have any incline into what those pay-per-views were? It'll probably be some like other B pay-per-view or something. I was going to say, if you gave us the year, I'd have a rough idea. <laughs> One was in 2000 and the other was in 2014. Uh, 2014, Tampa. Uh, was Extreme Rules 2014 not in this arena? It was not. Uh, nah, I wouldn't know. I've, uh, the pay-per-view schedule's gone out of my head here yeah the two pay-per-views that did take place in this particular arena we had Survivor Series 2000 which is well known uh, I can't actually remember <laughs> for the well main event between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H uh, also Undertaker taking on, uh, challenging Kurt Angle for the WWF title and of course Rikishi taking on the man that he did it for, The Rock <laughs> and so, but, the, sorry what you said so, so in both of these shows American heroes triumph Kurt Angle and John Cena <laughs> the other one was a Battleground 2014 oh so it was a pay-per-view then yeah. well we still got, but that's the letter an epic opening with the Usos and Harper and Rowan. Oh, yeah. We had that particular match. We had a Battle Royale for the Intercontinental title won by the Miz. Uh, and we had another hero of America, Jack Swagger. Although he was unsuccessful 
in beating Rusev on that particular show. We also had a World Heavyweight Championship being won after being vacated, which is an interesting similarity between these two particular pay-per-views. But let's get into the matches, and we're going to start with the main event. We obviously mentioned America's Greatest Hero was in this particular match, John Cena. Uh, He was one of two challengers to take on The Miz for the WWE title that night, the other one being John Morrison and what I believe was maybe John Morrison's one of his, maybe his first or second, I think he maybe took on The Miz. Uh, I was his second. He faced The Miz on the first Raw of 2010. It was a false Count Anywhere match. Yeah. Or 2011, I, rather. Sorry. I vaguely remember that because he beat Sheamus, I think, for the chance to get it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Around about the time where he was falling off the top of the chamber like a spider. Mm-hmm. And he started alluding to the fact that he could like jump over anything with his parkour skate, parkour skills. Skills, styles. Uh, yeah, I think they were setting him up if he'd stuck around to maybe be like the Kofi Kingston was in the Rumbles. Because remember this year's Royal Rumble, he did the first like big spot of like, oh, he's eliminated, but actually he isn't. He's hung on to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was going to be the. They seem to position him. You can have, they talk him quite highly in this match, but I think by the this point, the year after, he is gone from the company, which is uh, crazy to see. And you look back on John Morrison's two WWE runs, it's pretty much intertwined with The Miz and The Miz mm-hmm. nothing else. <laughs> That's pretty much what all he was doing for like the 18 months he was back as well, which is with The Miz. But this, a triple threat cage match, Scott, uh, not something you see very often with a cage. It's a unique type of formula, especially the way you can win a cage match, either by pinfall or by escape. Yeah, uh, I've kind of lost interest in the steel cage kind of simulation over the years, like especially given that like Hell in a Cell seems to be like a better you know, avenue for like what the steel cage was meant before, like stopping a heel escaping, and especially like when you have like more than one, more than more than just a straight up one on one match, that cage can be quite difficult. Like we saw when they did that Hardy's Dudley's match at Survivor Series 2001, we talked about in a previous look back where they started off as a bloody traditional tag match in a cage. But I think these three worked it very well with John and uh, with the two Johns working over the Miz and then turning on each other. Morrison got to do some of his parkour stuff in the key, like the he did a Jeff Hardy move where he could have escaped but chose to instead do a cool spot where he did the starship paint off the cage. Uh, and I know a lot of people don't like the idea of the, the cage having a door, but I think it was used to great effect here, especially that spot where it looked like Morrison was gonna was gonna escape and then he just. He landed in an unfortunate position on that door. Oh yeah, yeah, that got hot. You know, that was some, mm. that was something else, right? In the sh- uh, in the starship beans. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually seen that spot before. It was a uh, New Year's Revolution 2007 against Jeff Hardy, where that that spot actually resulted in Hardy getting the win. You know, Morrison lands nuts first on the cage door, and then Jeff crawls out for the win, but. It was almost a bit of a repeated spot in a way because, but the Miz managed to save it because he managed to pull Morrison back into the cage. And which, from that position, it was actually very awkward, but he made it work. And, you know, fair play to them. It, it didn't make it look, well, they didn't make it look too sloppy, but it was, uh, it was out of desperation, essentially. So it was high drama, especially, you know, with someone like Morrison and you who could slip through your fingers at any point. I mean, Dave, I credit the Miz for this match. I mean, he wrestled, this match was only about 20 minutes, and I think he wrestles 10 minutes of it, having landed on his 
freaking neck. Oh, oh yeah. We talk about the Miz being the safest wrestler in WWE history, but my God, I'm surprised he could bomb and survive after that. Well, that looked nasty. Mm, yeah, that that spot looked horrible when I watched it back. But it, it, it's just like you know they they didn't even just go the whole distance. You know they just sort of lifted him up and then just dropped to the mat. That could have ended so badly for for Miz. I thought initially didn't get. I thought he might get his foot caught in the cage because it looks kind of like he doesn't get his body fully, you know, over. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and I think I, I, I thought initially maybe his foot get caught, but no, it just looks like it's just like he they kind of sad bag my wee bit. It just looks it looks terrible. But you can tell the guys in commentary. I mean, Michael Cole, who at this point is prime heel, he's kind of like, oh yeah, no, he's he's done, he's hurt. <laughs> um, and Josh Matthews, who when I was making my notes when they were doing the opening promos, I had him down as match striker. <laughs> and he showed them. I was like, "Oh, fuck! It's George Matthews." It's a bit of an, in, an insult to Matt Striker. I know. Striker actually knows what he's talking about. The whole commentary, of the entire show, though. I mean, that's something to bring up. Uh, oh. The whole, the whole commentary. It was. You had Josh Matthews, probably one of the most uncharismatic announcers you could ask for, talking in his very sort of dulcet tone. And then you've got next to him, you've got Booker T, who's who's talking nonsense like he's just um reading words out of a thesaurus or something half the time and then you've got cole and lawler you know just sort of well lawler being lawler of course you know he kind of cuts uh, bad jokes half the time but at least you know at least he, he was actually pretty decent at commentary back then and then you just had cole just you know all he did was talk about himself and just shout his praises from the from the rafters and stuff it was Oh, it was a nightmare listening to commentary. You could have just watched the whole show without it. I remember that. Oh, yeah. I thinking Booker T was actually decent. But see, when you rewatch it after 11 years of Booker T in similar roles, you're like, nah, he sucks. Yeah, yeah. I remember like in 2017 when he joined the Raw team alongside Michael and, and Corey and just how nonsensical he was like each and every week. I thought, was he always this bad? And then I watched the show back and like, yes, yes, he was. Because I was actually, I was trying to be optimistic going into this show. I like the I made mind of the old set and like as Stephen said, like the idea like every match actually did have a stipulation and it fitted up to the name Extreme Rules. And then you're applied right back into how crap the commentary was at this time with Joyce Matthews struggling to like keep things going with a with, with Mad Grandpa, Booker T spouting nonsensical shit and I know King isn't as good as he was back in the day, but at least King only got to do one match and then but the midway point of the show, Cole comes back in that that coal mine, which I'd forgotten all about until this show. Bloody like, coal mine. Booker doesn't even understand basic English half the time. Like, he keeps trying to say like, several points in the show that somebody's being ragdolled, but he keeps saying they're being ragtagged. Mm. I mean, look up to him and we talk about it later on. I, I, I lost count the amount of times he said that Kofi, Kofi needs to show more aggression. Yeah. And he changes, his, he changes his top five like on a daily basis as well. Like, And some of these guys... If you were to seriously rank them, they wouldn't even come close to a top five. I mean, at least, at least this was pretty shucky ducky, quack quack. Oh god, yes. <laughs> Which was something else. But uh, back to the main event match. Uh, four stars this gets from Uncle Dave, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I think that's. I mean, it's a decent match. I think it's helped a lot by the uh, two-minute uh, cameo of uh, Mr. Ron Killings, our uh, truth. Uh, Fresh off of turning heel and uh, Scott, I was um, I didn't remember as much the truth character in this heel mode, still having such 
reminiscent of the uh, comedic truth character we've known to love over the last decade. I mean, he's a, he's an absolute dick here, and <laughs> and he's a uh, he's interviewed segment L on the show, but he's still absolutely hilarious. And credit to the whoever came up with the slogan on his top: "The truth, the truth, the truth is on fire." That's spot. <laughs> yeah, I remember like the whole story was that he was maybe a in John Morrison's spot, and then Morrison kind of weirdly for a baby face kind of tricks him into putting up his shot, and then when he loses, Truth just very viciously turns heel, but already you can see kind of the joke character that he starts to become as a heel, and in a couple months he'll introduce little Jimmy and all that stuff, but like, yeah, the, the funny promo that he cuts earlier in the night is very stark, stark contrast to what we see him in the cage, where he's very viciously attacked Morrison, he beats up Cena in the cage as well. He's just taking his frustrations on everybody. But like we didn't talk about him enough in the recent comedy or funniest wrestlers show because I think we've already talked in depth about how funny Artrus can be, but just he's how he you try to say conspiracy like see all in conspiracy. <laughs> nobody knows what I knows knows. But uh, what a nothing worse than conspiracies. People in conspiracy that I remember watching that back and I was in stitches because that is just that's peak R-Truth right there. It doesn't matter if he's face or heel. And he's you know, he does what all WWE heels do. He, he attacks the guy that he came in there to attack and attacks the other good guy because why the fuck not? <laughs> <laughs> attacks Cena as well. But and then that leads to the kind of closing segment. The closing segment's it's pretty decent with the Miz and Cena on the top of the cage, kind of going back and forth. Uh, we get the tease of a skull crushing finale off the top rope, which would have been pretty epic. Let's not be, let's be honest. But then we get uh, so a move that we've seen a lot over the years. When I look back on it, the big AA off the top rope. I mean, I remember when I first seen it, I thought it looked cool. But seeing you do all these lookbacks and Cena matches happen, he does that move so much over the years. Mm-hmm. I think he first did it to Bobby Lashley at the Great American Bash 2007 but he, that was a bit of a sloppy one because he didn't he didn't jump off the top rope with him he just sort of AA'd him from the top and then just climbed down which looked a bit sloppy but it was just as effective he's, he's done ones in matches where it involves him not you know having a pin it's technically a big AA does it I'm sure he did to Omega he definitely did to Batista uh, at one point as well I think that was the lead up to Batista coming out in the wheelchair and quitting. Oh no, yeah, he did, he did it off the he did it off the car, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, over the limit. Yeah, I think that. he did the I think he did it off the top rope one at their like their Mania twenty six match as well, but it wasn't like the finishing he he used that to set up the, the STF. But for this, I think it was weird that they chose to have the opening match end with a guy hitting his finish but off the top and then did the exact same thing in this match, where I think it made more sense to do it here. Yeah, and then of course we got the post-match. Osama bin Laden is dead. I'm sure it's on YouTube. And it it's, is, I think it is on YouTube, yeah. I think he goes in there for about two minutes. I think he spends the first minute talking about patriotism and then just goes, Osama bin Laden has been killed. And the crowd go absolutely... I think that's the biggest pop of the whole night. <laughs> when they go, Probably. Probably. He's been killed. It's like, oh. Jesus. I mean, I mean, biggest terrorist leader in the world at the time, you know, it was a, uh, I imagine for America it was a massive deal. Oh, God, I, oh, I, I remember, I remember, um, 
I'll tell you one thing about one thing about Cena though when you were talking about doing his moves. Um, you know that spot where they brought I think Morrison was brought back into the cage. Cena goes in and actually does a uh, monkey flip in the corner, which you don't often see him do. Morrison sells it like a boss, you know, like proper Dolph Ziggler style selling. <laughs> but what was really funny about that spot was, and this is one that stuck out to me, you know, aside from all the big spots off the top rope, is that the way Morrison landed, he actually had his left leg stuck up in the air as if he was ready to receive an STF, but yet Cena just goes for a cover instead. It was like, how did you not notice that Morrison is literally in the position you have, you want to be, want him to be in to perform the STF? It was, oh, it was just one of those sort of no-brainer moments right there. John Cena is the typical wrestler. At the time, he would be frustrated to say whatever. But now looking back, like I really want John Cena to be back. Other <laughs> question about like this, like the pay per view, but also this match. Mostly, I, I saw the thing that you said, Stephen, about how this was up in terms of pay per view from the previous year, and they do reference WrestleMania 27 in the the opening of the the video package. Like after all, the most historic WrestleManias. Which I forgot to include the most historically boring WrestleManias because it's not a good WrestleMania. And one of the first shots they show is of The Rock. So I'm wondering how much interest of like The Rock being back in the, the announcement the night after Mania of that Cena was gonna fight The Rock at WrestleMania next year helped like increase interest in WWE at the time, which helped increase the buy for what's seemingly mostly a WrestleMania rematch kind of show. And and part of me is wondering if like the only reason that they didn't have Cena walk out of WrestleMania as the champions because of they need the rock to cost them it so they could set up the match. But if it wasn't for the rock, I think Cena winning here would have happened at WrestleMania. Yeah, I think uh, they talk about in recent years about WrestleMania backlash has been WrestleMania rematch. But mm-hmm. for so many years, when they had extreme rules in April, it was just rematches with extreme paper uh, stipulations. So it's not like they've just got lazy recently. They've got lazy with it recently uh, in the last few years, but. It's slightly better, you know. The matches there's a, there's a lot of matches that were the same as Mania, but they, they at least tried to make them a bit different. And then recently, it's maybe just two sames. So I think maybe going back to the kind of extreme stipulation would kind of help. Uh, so yeah, this uh, main event was one of two world title matches that took place on the show. The other one was for the vacant uh, world heavyweight championship, as I alluded to in the intro part of the show. Uh, when I talked about Battleground 2014, this took place at this arena as well. They had a vacant match for the WWE title in their main event, which John Cena won. And a fatal four-way match. This particular one was a ladder match one-on-one where Alberto Del Rio, who unsuccessfully challenged for the World Heavyweight title at WrestleMania 27 uh, against Edge, took on Edge's best friend Christian for that the title that Edge vacated the SmackDown after WrestleMania, after he was forced to retire uh, due to injuries to his neck, which now we now know obviously that he is recovered from and is now wrestling again, which is great to see. Anybody who's a fan of Purple would love come day in his work. You know, I like Purple. But yeah, that's, that's it. Good to know. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, uh, Dave. I'll go to you in this particular one. Uh, I quite liked the. The promo package that they did for this one. I mean, one thing people can't really, never really criticize WWE for is the promo package work. Uh-huh. And this particular one is great. It, one kind of works with the emotional aspect of Edge's retirement while obviously talking a lot very cleverly about Christian's ladder match history because 
him and Edge were the specialists of the ladder match. Yeah, definitely. Uh, everything from their tag team days, WrestleMania 2000, uh, WrestleMania X7, SummerSlam, all the TLC matches that and all the ladder matches that Christian had up to this point was sort of leading to this moment. You know, uh, this is a match he specialized in and they made it quite clear in the promo package Del Rio has only been in one ladder match and that was TLC the previous year where he took that massive bump off the top of the ladder through a table. And But they were sort of... The way they hyped it up, it made it look like it was almost you almost second guess, you know, whether they were going to finally pull the trigger with Christian because the match stipulation in the experience would favor Christian, but then you had Del Rio, who was the X factor in, in in this match. You know, someone who didn't have a lot to lose. He had all the momentum behind him. He'd won a lot of big matches, you know, against likes of Rey Mysterio. He won the Royal Rumble that year. And he got to challenge for a title at WrestleMania. He had all they had a lot of stock invested in Del Rio, and you know he could pull a, a rabbit out of a hat at, during this time. So everybody's heart was with Christian for sure, but you couldn't help but think in the back of your mind: Is Del Rio going to sneak out a win here? And the way they did it in the promo, you know, it was almost as if they were grooming him to be the next World Heavyweight Champion. It was very, very well done. Scott, the other thing that kind of made it a bit more unpredictable was in the week prior to the pay-per-view, they had the WWE draft and Del Rio was moved to Raw. And in the, in the experience of these type of pay-per-views after drafts, you usually have, if, there's a, if they have a, scenario, a scenario where two champions were on the same brand, other than this last year, of course, where they just have them swap the titles in the ring, uh, they have some sort of method of getting the title into the other brand. We saw that in a match we'll talk about later on that happened early in the night. So the fact that there was no possible scenario that the WWE title was going to go to SmackDown, you kind of had... It led you towards Christian, but as Dave said, there was still that element of doubt with the kind of... You didn't, the way WWE portrayed Christian for so many years, you didn't... Were they actually going to push that button with him? Yeah, I think... I think when you're watching this, like, it was less to do with the draft, uh, not one like Del Rio but the idea of like, the title going to Raw is more a case of like the people being behind Christian they've done such a good job of the story of you know Christian feeling like he's been playing second fiddle to the edge and finally getting his shot to be a world champion because WWE clearly didn't count his long reign as ECW champion as being a champion and there were a lot of like diehard fans that also had seen that like, Christian could be a main event his own ways runnings and, and TNA and things like that you know there would have been a chance with the belt going over Raw if they'd not done the stupid thing they did that year's draft with Cena, who's in the main event, got drafted to SmackDown the first pick of the night and then went back to Raw the very end of the show, which was weird. But much like the Miz in the main event, Del Rio did a good job of basically playing the heel where you're watching him like, oh God, please not him, like anybody but him, because they're both just so unlikable. Miz because he's talented, Del Rio because, well, in and out of the ring, he's just an unlikable person. Even more so now than when mm-hmm. in 2011. I mean, part of my notes, I mean, MD who has seen kind of what these two have kind of done out with the ring. In my notes, I have Alberto Del Rio and Brodus Clay are the definition of a cunt pairing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's in hindsight, you know, you see the way he was treated when he came out of his entrance. You know, he had that fancy Maserati and stuff. He had the 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 fancy scarf. He 
had the the golden shower fireworks. He had the personal ring announcer. It was he. It definitely looked like you know he was being put into position to essentially be. It looked like they were treating him already as the world champion. Mm-hmm. And I think if Edge hadn't got hurt and they just did a straight like rematch, then I think he would have won the belt. I think they made the right decision when Edge got hurt and as they announced his retirement, which I remember at the time watching Raw, uh, it coming out of completely nowhere and it was a lot of shot to a lot of people. But I think if they'd, I think they made the right decision by going with the field goal, and if Christian won the title, it was shorter, albeit it did last. But they made the right decision because, you know, Del Rio is, was, as much as they were pushing him, they gave him the Rumble, won the match at Mania, and like, they thanked him to be a great like main event heel, but he just didn't have what it took to make me care about it. I, I, I still think that uh, they had an inkling that Edge was hot going into Mania, that's why he won it. Because otherwise, I think Del Rio wins that Mania match. Because mm. it, no, it would have made no sense that they would have won it. That they would have lost it and then won it, you know, on yeah. pay-per-view after it. But... Yeah, you never never know if it kind of titles change when this pay-per-view this randomly, so that's something else. Um, some other points uh, that I noticed in this match, uh, the spear, I think, is one of the most over moves in wrestling. Because uh-huh. he hits yeah. that spear, he goes for that spear, Dave, and the crowd just go mental. I don't know yeah. if it's maybe, I think the fact that it was Edge's move, I think, helps for that particular, because it was so fresh that he was retired. Yeah, I think that was it. You know, the the thought of everybody's thoughts of Edge still, you know, because it was only a few weeks after he had to throw in, throw in the towel because of his neck injury. And but yeah, I even watched the entrance and stuff and there was a lot of signs for Christian saying do it for Edge, that kind of thing. So I don't think the full investment was behind Christian. I think it was sort of like Christian and Edge going against Del Rio a little bit. So, but I mean, yeah, you're right about the spear though. I mean, not like edge level spear, but that see when it hit though. I mean, it was a damn damn good spear, and the pop alone, you know, was just enough to get bring sort of breathe life back into the crowd again. I think Christian hits quite a clean spear. I think you see a lot of guys hit a spear that looks quite rough. Uh, yeah, like Lashley's spear. You know, he sort of hits them with the shoulder, and then he flies off to the side a little bit. Same with Batista. Yeah, Christian at least he kind of looks more controlled of what he's doing, which I think is quite good. It's it doesn't look as impactful as, you know, the obvious ones like Goldberg and Rhino. But it does look technically sound, but I think it's quite good. Yeah, it's, it's uh, when you wrap it's when they wrap their arms around the torso, that's when it looks cl- much cleaner. And that's what both Edge and Christian did. Whereas, you know, Rhino just sort of went shoulder first, same with Goldberg, just charged them and then they almost turned into a bit of a spinebuster in a way. I mean, in fairness, we have a guy like bloody Rhino coming towards you at whatever speed he was going at in his prime. It's gonna hurt. <laughs> I mean, just two, two words for you: Goldberg, Nunzio. That's oh. the spear. Honestly, I think Christian has a better spear than Edge does. I've never been a fan of Edge's spear, to be honest. I liked Edge when he did the DDT, the edge, the execution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that looked that looked sore. And when he did the kind of the submission, I can't remember what he called the, submission. the educator. Yeah, almost yeah. like a. Almost like a, a half-turned sharpshooter in a in a way. Which I think. Sorry, I just got. They always had to find weird puns for uh, for Edge's moves. Like I think he did that weird like where he pulled them down by the neck, where he snuck up behind them. You think they mm. tried to call him that the Edge-O-Matic or some shit like that? Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, it was the Edge-O-Matic. 
mean, Edge's submission, Edge Care, it makes so much more sense why he recruits Rhea Ripley into Judgment Day, because she does a very similar version, kind of hanging them. It's like... Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I don't know why he hasn't brought that move back since he's turned to you. Like, oh, that, that submission the Rhea Ripley does is so cool. It looks, it looks almost like a... I don't know what, what its actual name is, but it, I'd, I'd dub it as the, the Scorpion Lock, because it looks like your opponent's hung up like a scorpion. I don't know what it's officially been called before, but I've heard it referred to as like a reverse version of like the Cloverleaf, because also she's turned around and facing them rather than like turn them around her with her back to them. I think it helps with her, given that she's so much taller than most women on the roster, so it makes it look even more impressive when she's just lifting them off the ground. I mean, look at the kind of finish this match up. Tristan gets the win, the big emotional victory. Four and a, four and a quarter stars from Dave Meltzer. It's his most acclaimed match of this card. See, in hindsight, 11 years on, see the fallout from this with the whole eh, Christian holds the title for less than a week and then goes into the stuff at Orton. Are you okay with that now in hindsight or are you still, do you think it was bad done? I think it stung at first because, you know, Christian's first world title run wasn't a properly good run. Like, but if it wasn't for that, I don't think we would have had that epic summer feud with Randy Orton, you know, having that series of what four matches over four pay-per-views, all with different sort of stipulations and controversial finishes. It was a really, really well-told story. And in, in the end, you know, Christian got a world title run that lasted longer than a week but then again it was like almost like Orton's first reign which only lasted a month but nonetheless you know it was I think it was rivalry of the year as well and for good reason like the storytelling between the two was was magnificent yeah yeah I, I'd agree I mean, it, it was a weird shift because like they keep Edge around on TV after the retirement to be in like in Christian's corner and, like you know raise his hand at the end of this and I'll say the quick shift that Edge is off TV and the storyline with Randy begins but it would end up being one of the best rivalries of the year, uh, one of the best stuff that either man would do at that stage of their careers. You know, the, the famous Christian stuff, like one more match to shift to him being a, a heel. But, you know, I think, yeah, it would have helped if they'd given Christian just a few more weeks at least to, you know, enjoy being world champion as a face before making the slow transition to a heel. But I think it had to do with the fact that WWE probably didn't see him as a, as a main eventer and he is always better as a heel, but wish we would have gotten some more time with face world champion Christian than like than we did. I think also that, that feud almost gets overshadowed. Like, I think it did at the time because the punk Cena stuff was happening around at the same time, just as it was reaching its crescendo, this feud. I think looking back at it, a lot of people were giving it more appreciation. Yeah, they, out, they outperformed Punk and Cena, which is no mean feat at SummerSlam that particular year. Their match. Mm-hmm. So the punk the punk Cena match at Money in the Bank is by far the best on that card, but the best on the SummerSlam card that the two is Christian or Cena Punk is still my number one WWE match of all time. I've seen like some people who don't like the idea that Christian won the belt via DQ, but I like that in terms of what the story is because when Orton kicks him in the balls, there's a slow moment of realization from him and we use an audience we think, oh, do you then you remember the stipulation? Like He's done it. Christian's done it. It's Christian. <laughs> uh, one final one final point on this particular match. Car horn distraction for the win. 
<laughs> oh, that was like one of three funny moments uh, that I got out of this match because, I mean, obviously you get the horn blaring, Christian pushes Del Rio off. Uh, third, oh, we'll go in reverse with the funny moments here. Uh, third moment number three, uh, Del Rio falls off the ladder to the outside, nearly misses going out. Brodus Clay like almost misses him and just catches him with his arms. And then just out of nowhere, he just sort of lies on the floor. He just sort of falls to his knees, lies on the floor as if he's passed out. <laughs> but what you don't realize is he actually got busted open when Christian attacked him with a ladder. He was bleeding quite badly from it as well. Uh, moment the second was the Del Rio jumping from the out, jumping from the ring to the outside on the bridge ladder. Like, was it supposed to be an elbow drop? Was it a knee drop? Was it a leg drop? He just sort of jumped and the ladder didn't even break on him. And then moment one before the match even started, Christian's Titan, this sort of HD Minitron was upside down. Like, I don't know if you noticed that, but yeah, was, the background was of the a map of the world behind the letters CH. But yeah, the map of the world was upside down, apparently. I didn't notice that one. I think I was a bit... I, I kind of I, I zoned out during the entrances when I was watching the show back. Just waiting for the kind of matches to kind of go on. But that's the best match, you know, from the rating system on this particular show. But we will rewind a bit. I'm going to go back to the opening match on the card. It's a rematch. It's the first rematch from WrestleMania 27 that we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a rematch of a match that many people classed as the best match on the WrestleMania card that had a rematch. I'm trying to word this in a particular way. <laughs> it's uh, Randy Orton taking on CM Punk in a last man standing match, which we see the Nexus band from ringside as they come out. Uh, Scott, one quick point. Raw GM laptop gimmick, still terrible, 11 years on. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, 2011 and all Punk stuff and the Christian stuff that we talked about aside is not one of the best years WIs and the Punk straight into some of the worst aspects of it when this show opens with like, some of the people we see on commentary, the coal mine and this anonymous Rod GM. Because like, you had this whole video package about how oh, I think we're all going to get extreme and but then when Punk, who should be allowed to bring the Nexus out because it's a no DQ, no match, and then the Rod GM brings out the most deadly weapon of all, admin, by telling them they can't. See the fact he said all oh, they're banned from ringside. Surely that means Punk should have taken Orton into the crowd or to the backstage area with a sprawl. So then the Nexus couldn't get involved. Like, technically, we're not ringside, we're backstage. You didn't say we were banned from here. That requires some thought. You know, that requires a bit of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> creative booking. From the, the general managers. Uh, but, Dave, I think uh, my first thought of the actual match of this one. Uh, Kendall sticks before they were cool. Uh, yeah. In the current WWE climate, any match that has an extreme form of it, we see Kendall sticks. It's done quite cool in certain aspects of it. Sasha Banks versus Becky Lynch is an example in the Hell in a Cell. Uh, but you didn't really see them as much back here. It was mostly tables, ladders, and chairs. Mm-hmm. You would see it. So the Kendall sticks were quite cool in 2011. Yeah, bear in mind this was. Uh... This was PG, WWE, Extreme Rules, so I think they could only do so much with what they had. Kendo sticks obviously being the, the safer bet because, you know, because they're made of wood, they don't do as much damage as steel, but they still sting like a... I'm going like to say, I, mean, I think you're maybe underselling that a wee bit. They still hurt. <laughs> yeah, as I'm saying, they sting like a like a bastard. But um, 
Uh, to be honest, I mean, while the match I thought was quite good, I think they were sort of a little bit limited with the, the usage of weapons a little bit. Like, they could have been... I think they could have been a bit more creative with the weapon spots, although there were some really, really good ones, such as, you know, Punk getting thrown neck and shoulder first into that wedged chair, which I thought looked pretty painful as is. The Why they didn't break the announce table, though, I think that would have been a good... Uh, sort of finishing moment or if they'd done what Triple H and Undertaker did at Mania the month prior like why didn't they just destroy the coal mine like that would have been a great way to kick off the show because it was the opening match Dave yeah yeah, and nobody nobody liked the coal mines so just get rid of it straight away they need the, they need the announce table for uh, Michelle McCool to kick Layla's head until later on that was the reason why they kept it nah, but they, they could rebuild the announce table though they can't necessarily rebuild the coal mine because it was a Perspex box that was sort of held together with hinges and screws. I need the coal mine for later on. <laughs> yeah, I suppose like, when coal following the country whipping match. I mean, I look at it today, I think you're being slightly harsh on some of the spots in this match because I think, like, yeah, you have the spot with, with Punk going into the chair. I think, given that they were in the open match, there was a certain amount of stuff they were allowed to do, obviously. You, you can go extreme, but it was like we've got all these other stipulation matches, so like don't use up all the key spots. But I think it makes it look more impactful when the table doesn't break because it's just the backs like bear slamming onto the onto the announce table, and then also it plays into the fact that Punk really only managed to stand up because he just rolled up and his legs happened to touch the ground. Because as soon as the referee weighs up and says that he's he's up, he just collapses again immediately, and they did that very well with both men kind of selling the exhaustion, like being how each other's finishers to keep each other down as it traditionally would do. But they had to use like the ropes or roll and use the steps to, to help them stand up and and things like that. I did like the, the punk uh, spot with the chair when Orton's throw that looked pretty nasty. Oh, pulmonizing mm. is the one mm. you usually call it. It's, it always looks nasty, I think, because it's a chair around the metal, steel chair around the throat, which, yeah, it never looks very clean but it's effective um, they use the RKO really well in this match I, I, I personally feel uh, Punk does a quite a good counter of the RKO at one point where he pretty much counted as a leg sweep which is really cool uh, the first RKO in the match Orton's transition into it is really good uh, oh yeah very smooth sm- speaking as we record I cannot remember even though I watched this pay-per-view like seven hours ago what he did in that transition <laughs> I remember noting it down as being cool not referenced enough but I, I can't remember exactly what he did I think I think what you were doing was like Punk had been in control for most of the match by this point he, I think he'd already hit the GTS by this point but Orton found a way to get up and he was set up for some sort of chair spot and, and Orton just kind of was playing possum and then just grabbed him out of nowhere like they were selling the whole like you know, yeah, the RKO can come out of nowhere yeah, it was like a Russian leg. It was going to be a Russian leg sweep, up, Russian leg sweep on an upright chair, and then Orton just goes straight into the RKO. It was aye. literally like blinking, you miss it. That was, that, aye, that was it. I did, I did think at the time this is cool. I'm going to note it down, and I can't remember what I just said. I, I just put RKO transition in my notes, and I was like, I should be a bit more precise <laughs> you know, with what I did uh, on this particular one. I think personally, a lot of the time, the last man standing matches, it's a difficult one to pull off as a really good match. Because with the last man standing stipulation, you've got a lot of lags between kind of counts. Because you have points where the guy's down and he gets up, and the guy's down and he gets up. So it's difficult to kind of get that one. I think the first half of the match, it's quite slow in that particular way. But 
when they start to kind of they move, I think particularly when they move to the outside a bit later on, there's a lot of cool stuff in that one. It gets a, it brings it up. It gets three and a half stars from the Observer. Uh, I maybe think it's slightly high. I don't know about you guys. No, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, like given to I think it's actually one of the more underappreciated matches from that year's Mania, and then obviously taking other notes with the stipulation, I thought it did very well. I think you could have shaved a few minutes off this match because the opening few minutes, as you said, like there was a bit of like where like they were doing the most basic moves, and then the referee would start the count. At least you had Punk kind of playing to go, no, 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 we're not having it that easy, and he pulled Orton back up. But then he'd, he'd like go the other way a few minutes later by just hitting him with a regular bat suplex and insisting the referee counts as if that's gonna as if that's gonna keep him down. And it does feel like at points that Punk looks a bit checked out, like he's because we know he's a couple months away from the pipe bomb that he does say that he was partly considering leaving uh, when his contract was coming up, and uh, it did look like he's kind of a bit checked out because he's just kind of taking the piss with the kennels like doing poses with it while the referee's carrying Norton down. Oh yeah, yeah, I think he looks slightly checked out here. I think he looks see a lot of the stuff he does, as you say, between now and the pipe bomb, he looks really checked out. He has that tag he has a tag team title match with uh, Mason Ryan. Where he looks absolutely <laughs> like he does not give an F what's going on. Aye. But uh <laughs> he, took, he, he randomly took the turnbuckle pad off the corner as well before the match started. Like <laughs> that was just weird. Yeah. <laughs> He uses it and he, he works with it. So yeah, eventually, yeah, but it's kind of weird at the start. Which kind of makes sense. It's I think this match. This is an intro, I, I, I kind of like to compare because it's, it's interesting. This match is one of two official kind of rematches from WrestleMania 27. This one kind of opens, so it's got a lot more focus on it. The other one kind of takes place in the middle of the show, and it's the match between Cody Rhodes and Rey Mysterio. Now. I remember watching this one, uh, Dave, I'll go to you. I remember watching the match of WrestleMania 27 and I thought, this is pretty good. This is the first proper decent showcase of Cody Rhodes. Never really remember really watching this one again. This match is so much fun to watch between these two guys. Yeah, this, I think this is probably the most underappreciated match of the entire night, given the lengths that these guys went to to pull off some extreme moments like there was a good chunk of it that went in sort of backstage and into the crowd etc like some of the creativity and the the bumps these guys take is is unreal you know the guy they're pulling drop kicks onto concrete floor ray does the seated senton off the stage and just the amount of creativity they did just by balancing on walls and going up the stairs etc it was this was, I mean, their WrestleMania 27 match was one of the best on the WrestleMania card, but I think this one, they did just as good, if not better. Yeah, uh, Scott, I don't know, you maybe have a bit more, I mean, it's not Dave's specialty there, this felt very much, see that point where they were going into the kind of crowd area, it felt very attitude era, which is mm. what I think I really liked about it. Yeah, I think you were able to get away with that in a pay-per-view like this, and I think this is a period of time where they start bringing in more attitude early tropes with people bringing people from that era back, you know, trying to drum up interest in a time where business, where interest in wrestling isn't at its highest in the start of the 2010s. And, you know, I, I think the WrestleMania match between these two is good, but it feels like just a standard match. And you don't remember, they only then bring in the story elements of like the mask and the knee brace to the end of it to help Cody win where he cheats to win. Whereas this one helps improve upon that first match, which is what a rematch 
uh, a big pay-per-view should do and not just be a rematch just for the sake of it, like some other ones at this kind of pay-per-view. And yeah, you have the spots backstage, the stuff off the off the like the stands, uh, the new spots, and like where Cody's back drops Ray off of the over the top when he goes over the barricade back into the ringside area. And I remember watching this back and thinking, like, I don't think I appreciated the disfigured Cody Rhodes gimmick as nearly enough when I was first watching it because first few months of it, I was like, I don't get it. Like, he doesn't look that bad. <laughs> I didn't realize that was maybe like the point of it. And I didn't realize that it was this early on and he's running his this disfigured character because he carries us all the way to like October. He's already got the two guys handing out the, the, the paper bags. I mean, all right, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I can't get full clarity on it looking online, but one of the bad guys looks really familiar. I don't know if you've maybe both seen this yourselves or if it was just me. What, just on this show? Yeah. I am sure one of the bad guys is QT Marshall. <laughs> really? I've, I'm pretty... I can't get conf- I can't confirm it online. I'm, I was trying to look earlier on, but I am a very, very certain that one of the bad guys is QT Marshall. Which one, though? Because I'm trying to... I just brought the one of the pictures up, and... It's difficult to tell, but is it the one on the left when Cody's making his entrance? It's the one two Cody's left, I'm sure. Oh, that's... Uh, I don't I'm, know. I'm Maybe, if, you, if you put a beard on him, I might be able to see it, but bear in mind, this this was 10 years ago. He probably looks a lot different back then. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one to call. Uh, I don't know if he's maybe noticed as well when the... <laughs> I, like, I, I quite like this. Just see when they're doing, see when they're backstage in the concession area. There's a, there's a big screen TV, uh, and on the TV is the royal wedding from that year. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually uh, the royal wedding. It's the uh, was it Kate and Kate no, William? Kate and Williams. It's on the TV. <laughs> I actually thought when they first when you first seen it, it's like a still. And it's still for ages. And I thought, have they just put a still of the royal wedding on the TV? And it turns out it's not. It's just they're actually showing the royal wedding. Back to the cab. Was that not like the, I'm pretty sure was that not like the same weekend as the Osama thing that happened the uh, the royal wedding? Because pretty sure they happened around about the same time. I think it was also a big story. Yeah, I'm sure it was the same weekend. It was kind of like an Easter. Ah, I, I, I have found an article from QT Marshall which says. I met Cody in Ring of Honor, but in 2011, I was actually an extra with Cody on a pay-per-view. <laughs> oh, my God. So, it, w- it probably was him then. Yeah. Here's like, this is an extract from an interview he does, I'm sure, with what's his, Chris, uh, Van, Chris Van Der Veel. Chris Van Vliet. With Van Veel. I, I, him, I can't pronounce his name. And he says, I met Cody in Ring of Honor, but in 2011, I was actually an extra with Cody on a pay-per-view. I had to be... It's just badly transcribed. I had to be at the ring when he was bagging the people's heads. So yeah, for Extreme Rules 2011, I was yeah, I was there. Fair enough. Yeah. Honestly, oh. the two bad guys looked very just like unrecognizable to me. Like I just didn't really notice them at all. So I clearly wasn't looking. Yeah, I've just I've just got the clip up. I just got a clip up from backstage here. I can confirm the Royal Wedding was played on. It was um <laughs> it was right before they did the. The mirror spot where I think Ray dragged Cody in front of a mirror. He was saying that no, 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 I don't want to look at me. Don't look at me. And then he does the disaster kick, 
from the mirror to Ray. I mean, one of the great spots. And then afterwards, Ray does a, a crossbody off the off the bar. Yeah. Oh, just so many underappreciated moments and little Easter eggs in this match. Oh, it's, that is some top stuff. I'm a big fan of fighting up the stairs. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big attitude era fan, and you see, see quite a lot. I mean, it's a terrible Royal Rumble match, but I love the kind of point in the Royal Rumble '99 match where you just see Vince and Austin just fighting everywhere. And it, you know, two guys, I guess, like Edge and Road Dog are in the ring, and all you just they just pan to Austin getting battered in the toilets by the corporation. <laughs> stuff like that I always find was really cool, and that's why I quite like this, and I don't do enough of. Uh, we mentioned about Spears in the World Heavyweight title match. There's a very bad spear from Ray Mysterio, but he does it through the bins. Through the bins, yeah. So that's what makes this cool. Uh, Scott, there's a great Muta reference from <laughs> uh, a commentator. I can't remember what commentator it was, but I'm surprised they made the great Muta reference towards the end of the match. I don't like. It was almost like blue, like the mist, because like Ray's mask there was blue, despite the fact that uh, Booker T on the replay would say, "Oh, some some kind of green mist," <laughs> and it was weird. Like I thought at first, I was like, "Is that really going to affect him?" Because he's got a mask, but obviously the mask has eye holes. But uh, I think it was interesting. I was like, Cody cheated to win their their match at WrestleMania, so you could argue that he was cheating here, but also he was kind of turning it back around on the heel. So. I think it worked enough for the for the match, and given also the, for a lot of WWE fans, the uh, most famous person to do the miss would be Tajiri, and Ray also he did a lot with Tajiri back in the old Cruiserweight days. I was waiting on them saying Tajiri for the reference, so I was really <laughs> surprised when they said Mutter. I was like, I was like, fair play. I didn't really know half of you who Mutter was, but yeah, it's uh, I think it's, there's a point where one of the points in the show where Michael Cole starts referencing all his favourite wrestlers. Somebody that turns around to him and goes, You've been doing your homework? <laughs> yeah, you would never know that one. Again, I cannot remember who the thing was. This is a gem of a match in the middle card. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the mask, the disfigured Cody stuff, I personally feel was his best WWE stuff before the current comeback run. And his first run, I thought his disfigured stuff was brilliant. Mm. And put him on the map. And when he kind of, after this, when he kept when his eventually just faded the mask away, it just kind of felt there. And I think that was half the issue. Aye. Also, I've also noticed as well, when they do a close-up of Ray, Ray's face after he wins the match, I notice how, dis- how if you want to talk about disfigurement, just look at his bottom set of teeth. Oh, he took some absolute belters in his ear. He got- Kevin Nash threw him onto a blooming side of a blooming production truck in 1996. That's a spot and a half up. Hell, <laughs> he just launches him. He's took some bumps in his time, has Ray. That's why he's had about a million and one surgeries in his life. Uh, but, yeah. Good quality match. Uh, to me, at this point, this was the best match of the card. I think it oh. kind of gets surpassed later on, but for the first four matches, it was pretty good. Uh, yeah, match quality at that point was very consistent, bar one glaring exception, but yeah, it was. Uh, this was sort of like the halfway point, and it was so well done up to that point. And I'm going to talk about another match. Uh, the first title match that we have on the card for this particular one. I'll talk about the other ones maybe a bit more briefly. So I'm going to give us a bit more time than the other three. 
is the impromptu US title match between Sheamus and Kofi Kingston. Uh, Scott, uh, 10 out of 10 for Sheamus before the match in his promo, asking to see Kofi Kingston's birth certificate because he, he doesn't believe he's from the USA and doesn't have a shot at the title when Sheamus is Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute fair play. That is just like, with a straight face to tell it all. It's great, but yeah, these two it's, it's mental just thinking that 11 years since this pay-per-view and these two are feuding still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's actually weird yeah, looking back at this uh, point in time. Actually, this is one of the better matches on the show and it was even announced like, ahead of time, which is really funny about it. And I'm pretty sure the whole uh, thing about the birth certificate and that was maybe like a a reference to Trump, who was saying all these things about Obama, claiming he wasn't really American, so he shouldn't be president. A lot of people say he shouldn't be president either, but that didn't stop him. Uh, and look at this match. Like I just, I do love like you say the way Taylor just reacts. He just looks at him like birth certificate, and then you have the match as you said with Booker T and several. Like, oh, he needs to get a mean streak, which he does have in this match because they show that uh, Seamus beat him up on the. On the SmackDown before this, and you know, I like that Sheamus did this thing on this thing where he was the US champion, where he had he switched from his traditional black and green to more red, white, and blue attire because uh, he's the US champion. And yeah, I think probably well, off the top of my head, probably one of if not the best tables match finishes of all time in this match with Kofi when Sheamus goes to the outside thing, he's escaped, but he leans against the table, Kofi dies across with the, the leg drop, which was just outstanding. And despite the fact that obviously leading up to that point, they'd argued that maybe Sheamus had the edge because he won the WWE title in a tables match. Yeah, Dave, we, 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 kind of, we, talk, we talked about the main event. We talked a lot about, we talked about John Morrison at that year's Rumble. He was the kind of, he was the guy who kind of prevented escape in some unique way. Something which Kofi would eventually take on when John Morrison left. But we kind of get some glimpses of just what Kofi is capable of doing in this particular match. He does two table dodging spots in particular that are very good. In particular, the one he does in the corner, where he goes split leg to avoid it. That just that was class. Oh, he's so good at those split leg moves, like especially like uh, when his opponent's sort of in the corner, and then he does like a, a straight up jump to the top rope to get him like a get himself almost in like a hurricane rana position, and then punches like that's. That level of creativity, you know, can only be done from a guy like Kofi. And it was, I think, from that point on, I think, you know, people started to sort of resonate Kofi, you know, with being a lot more innovative and creative compared to a lot of the other talent. But not like he didn't do it before in the last couple of years, like when he did his first Money in the Bank ladder match at Mania 25. But that's the, I think that's why Extreme Rules suits a guy like Kofi, because, you know, he's... Uh, you know, he just comes out with new innovative ways to not only make it extreme, but also entertaining at the same time. But he even showed out a good bit of aggression as well before they started getting the table. Like, you know, you were saying jokingly about uh, Booker T's commentary. It's like, say, oh, Kofi should show more aggression and stuff. Well, he did, th- he did just that. You know, he did a takedown spot and then was f- uh, flinging fists on Jameis and stuff. It was, um, yeah, Kofi just did a lot of things a lot of things right here and he deserved the win especially with that leg drop finish one of my favourite probably 
many people don't know this about it, but I found it quite funny. There's a point, Kofi, early on the match, Kofi pulls a table out. Sheamus doesn't, stops him using it, puts the table back, goes round to the side of the ring, like, perpendicular to it, pulls another table out, and then about five minutes later in the match, he goes back to the, to the table that he put under the ring and pulls the table back out. I mean, why didn't you just keep the table out, man? You're just saving, you're just wasting energy. <laughs> it's just not maybe, maybe just in case you know the match goes on, he forgets about it later, or Kofi forgets about it later, and then he knows at least he knows where it is for later. Oh, maybe just supposed to hide it. There's nothing worse than an unused spot or something like that. that I think was it Extreme Rules, the first ever one that they had the they had the flaming table spot and they never used it, or was that a different pay per view? I think it was like TLC 2015 where like, it was like the Dudleys and the Wyatts where like they set up a table and they put it on, well no they got a light on fire, they put a lighter fluid on it but then Bubba just gets put to the table before he can light it. Right, stuff like that it's just like, no that, that, that just doesn't buy me. Need- I think it was like SummerSlam 2020 as well, you had Mandy and Sonya in the Loser Leaves WWE match. I think they, they brought a table out but it was never it was never used. You know, it's things like that, you know, you just like, like, why bother? But the thing with it, this was, this was a scenario, I kind of mentioned it with the World Heavyweight title match. They had a scenario where they had the two undercard titles on the one brand now with Sheamus going to SmackDown, so they had to get away to get it back to Raw. And Kofi was the kind of reliable hand to do that. I believe, I can't remember if it was a brand switching situation, but he had one where he took the title off of Jericho a couple of years mm. before. When he came free, when he went came from ECW, it just seemed like that guy that was just kind of he was good guy to have that. He was just a reliable guy to have that with because he doesn't hold the title for very long. Ziggler takes it off him a couple of months later. Yeah, like, I think yeah he moved to ECW on oh like a supplementary draft and then just beats Jericho a week later. And I think both of these guys weren't even the main draft picks; they were like. Guys in the sub, well, Seamus was one of the main picks, but Kofi again was a supplementary draft pick, which was always a weird one. We just had this list of, oh, by the way, this person's on this show now. I do love when they're hyping up the big draft picks from Ron, to Ron Smadden later on. And amongst the Smadden ones, they've got Seamus, Orton, Sinkara, Great Cali. <laughs> I, think, no, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think Seamus was actually in the supplementary draft, funnily enough, and he was the US champion at that point. But then you sort of, I just they had a graphic and Seamus was in it. I'm pretty sure he was one of the main picks. Really? I don't remember yeah, that. Yeah, like, they showed the graphic midway through like, the show because then on the Raw side, I think they have like uh, Del Rio, Big Show, Murray was one of the one I can't remember. I think, I actually think Booker inadvertently makes a joke about how crap Cali is because he said, like, look at the great stuff we got here on Friday night. We got uh, Seamus, the, U- the former USM. We got Randy Orton. We got Sin Cara. And just to balance it out, and there's a pause, and then he says, "Great Cali." <laughs> I mean, they he's not wrong. They don't even show Mark Henry in that one. Mark Henry was probably that the, the shot performer of that year's draft, from where he was before the draft to where he would go to later in the summer. Yeah, which is crazy. But that, at that point, you know, you had both the United States and Intercontinental Champion on SmackDown. So I think I think the match result for this one was a bit of a foregone conclusion that you know you had to get. Well, if the Intercontinental title was on SmackDown already and the US champion just got drafted, then you have to think, you know, if Kofi, who's a raw guy at that point, you have to imagine that he's likely going to win it. But not, 
not taking away from it, like because it was a really good match. We talk about how forgettable or how underused some of the the micro belt that the US IC title are. Legit, like when they're having the US title thing, I didn't even think about like the two micro titles potentially switching or being on the same brand. I legit forgot at this point of time who is the Intercontinental Champion, and then we see the Intercontinental Champion was competing for the tag titles. I'm like, ah, I like you, Wade, but you were quite forgettable. More, at least two or three out of your five IC title reigns. I had the exact same thought of who's the IC title, and then that match, the second to last match, I was like, oh, it's wait, oh, he loses it in two months, and then the guy who beats him loses it two months later. Oh, what time! Uh, Summer of twenty eleven. What a time to be a fan. Oh man. So we've we've kind of covered the good to decent matches on the card. There's three more matches that we're going to quickly kind of touch upon in the next kind of 15 minutes or so. Um, Dave, what's your thoughts on country whipping? <laughs> um, I'm vehemently opposed to it because it could be very, <laughs> it could be taken in a very wrong way, or it could easily be taken out of context in a number of scenarios. But in the what, context what, what of dress bubble wrap. Right, in the context of WWE, coming out in bubble wrap is a genius idea because you can see how ineffective it makes the whip uh, as it is. Like, so I mean, fair play to Michael Cole, you know, for you know being a little bit more creative when it comes to you know, I mean, never forget like wearing you know shield body armor or whatever. Like bubble wraps the 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 future of uh, you know. Ring gear. It's, it's very poorly done bubble wrap, to be fair. Because it's a- <laughs> but then again, Michael Cole was a very poorly booked heel character and an even worse booked like competitor. Oh, he's... he's I mean, Scott, we have... I'm going to put my head out there. And some people might hate me saying this. We have ve- four very bad competitors in this match. <laughs> I feel for risk <laughs> for this particular point. Yes, I am saying about Swagger. Anybody who tries to tell me that Jake Hager is is an improvement on Jack Swagger is t- talking absolutely not us because he's still shit. He just looks a bit, it looks more like he'll batter you than he did in 2011. But he just looks like a wee boy. It's tall. <laughs> well, Jake Hager is a little bit credible because he has the MMA record behind him. Jack Swagger, though, was dog shit. That's all I'll say about that. Yeah, I don't want to act like an MMA expert, but have you seen the guys he's fought recently in, in MMA? Like, he's not exactly going up against some of the best so far, but, you know, then again, he probably would still murder me. But looking at this match, the four of them, you've got two non-wrestlers, two people who probably shouldn't be in the ring. Uh, you got Jerry Lawler, who, yeah, he's a veteran, but he got through his career by doing 60-minute matches, which involved him doing as little as possible other than but one of his key, when one of your signature moves is taking the strap down on your singlet, you know you've not got much of a move set. And then yeah, you got Jack Swagger. Jack Swagger, even your most like his biggest fans should say that he's not the person that should, you know, be carrying the match. The guy responsible for carrying a match amongst some guys who are very inexperienced. And you know a lot of people look at it like he's assisting last year. He was defending the world title. Now he's been put into this. What a demotion. Weirdly, I think he's more suited to this than he was being world champion because I don't think he should have been anywhere near that title at that point. I mean, uh, you debate maybe 2013 before he fucked it for himself. But I mean, all the other stuff we've talked about on this show, I thought, oh, that's actually better than I remember it being. Or actually, I remember that being decent at the time. It was still decent now. This one, this is 
when I heard I was doing this show, this was the match I immediately thought, and, oh, God, I have to talk about that. And it was equally as bad as I thought it would be. Because, <laughs> like, they only had two ideas what to do in this match. Punch, kick someone while they're down, or do some whipping. <laughs> Even then, they still had to abide by, like, tag, tag rules during this match. Although... Michael Cole with the bull rap was funny, especially given the fact that when King realised the bull rap was actually pure and effective, he just slapped them in the face, knocked them down, and just tears the bubble wrap right off of them. And the point I'm watching Michael Cole wrestle, I thought, this is what Dave would be like if he tried to be a wrestler. He'd be very much like Michael Cole. I mean, I, mean, I don't think you'd have right. that bright orange uh, a ring oh, gear. I know hey. you're not a fan of things that are orange. <laughs> you know what fair play i'll give you that that was uh, that's quite uh uh no well 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 played there uh but i resent the fact that you know i'd wrestle like michael cole i think with the proper training and the right mindset i think i could i could be pretty decent i mean you'd yeah. wrestle like him i think i said you'd have a similar character to michael cole probably oh no i resent that even more like that, that's outrageous <laughs> I mean, Dave's not the best on earth like John Lynch, so hey-ho, I'm not going to say that anymore. <laughs> this, this show comes out six days preceding a certain European final, and I don't want to say too much in case things don't go particularly that way. Uh, um, my main note from this match was lots of whipping happened in the future <laughs> of the Mania. I also need to say fair play to Jack Swagger, because he sells JR's ankle lock like it's the most excruciating move on earth. So <laughs> I will give him that. Um, I love that Cole, even though he's demeaned JR a lot in this feud and he whipped him on the raw before this, he still knows that if he got in there, JR would probably kill him. So he's shouting out to Jack Swagger, tap, because he'd rather, because Swagger's reaching out for the tag, because Cole would rather lose the match back with Jack Swagger tapping than get in the ring with JR, which I thought was pretty clever. Although I remember being very annoyed with this thing because he kept teasing that JR was going to come back full time because he kept coming back and then going away and coming back during 2011. And I think it was just it was just teasing me. So we'll now go on to our, um, our only women's match of the evening. It's the uh, the mega powers exploding. <laughs> Lake Cool falling apart. Layla versus Michelle McCool. Uh, Scott, this is... I would say this is my favourite note-taking I've taken of any match on the show. Because <laughs> uh, my first two, my first line of notes is, Big Tam has worked here for too long. <laughs> so is Natalia, to be honest with you. She's there as well. At least she can uh, wrestle. She still is dishwasher, but at least she can wrestle. <laughs> she uh, the rest yeah. of- my second line of notes is, Layla is a very unlikable face. Oh, yeah. Like, all the fact that she is trying like apologize to everybody because she knows she might be leaving and she knows she's made a lot of enemies because be associated with uh, be associated with Michelle McCool. She's basically like what Kevin Bridges describes like you've made a pal with somebody who everyone else thinks is a dickhead, but by the time you realise it's too late and everybody knows knows Layla as the dickhead's pal. Yeah, I mean so much Dave that uh they both still come out to the same music. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yeah, like when is when have you ever seen a match where both competitors, where both opponents come out to the same entrance music? I mean, I think that's got to be a first. But I think the match started off quite well. You know, Layla turns her back to Michelle for like one second and then Michelle tries to capitalize on it because they know that, you know, one slip up here and they lose their, lose their jobs. But I'm pretty sure this match, uh, funnily enough, it wasn't the shortest match of the night. 
which I thought it was going to be because, you know, remember how women's wrestling was treated back then. You know, they, you'd be lucky if the... And they were, refer- they were still referred to as divas back then that you could see on the name graphics. They had wwedivas.com, which Come was basically on. most of them in just skimpy outfits. Look at the women they look at the women they had backstage. You know, preceding that we've already talked about Tamina. Uh, they had Kelly Kelly, who, strangely enough, three months later was the women's champ. Uh, Beth Phoenix was there, and she wasn't on the card. Like, what the hell? So was Gail Kim. Gail Kim is there. Rosa Mendez is there. I remember one of my most popular tweets of all time was somebody putting out that WWE putting out that Rosa Mendez had been released, and I put out and I replied to it going, "I thought she left three years ago." <laughs> 200, 200 likes or something like that and I was, I was like apparently it wasn't just me but was yeah. like a, was, didn't Rosa like do an interview or something I think we, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before but it's like if somebody asked her like oh what, what was your finishing maneuver and it's like and she was like I don't know I've never won a match I think she made it down an episode at all Davis like she, I think she said to like the even Maria Jojo because they were in the time like oh what's your finisher I don't have one uh, which she's honest about it but we talk about not knowing who like the IC champion that is at the time. Who was the Divas champion at this time? Because like you said, there's only one women's match in this show. And Divas champ is not involved in it, and I don't like the fact that Tony Jim had to specify it, say no DQ, no care, loser must leave Divas match. Like, do you really need the specification that it's a Divas match? Right, wrestlers, wrestlers are wrestlers. You know, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Plus, who else is having a loser leaves on this night? I was like the Davis champion at this time uh, was remote. Oh, <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Oh, and she would I lose. Think... She would lose to Kelly Kelly on June that year. I, th- I, th- I thought they won it after this because uh, I think like Michelle and Layla had been like the top heel team for a while in the women's division. I think then we'd get it open to the door for the Bells to kind of take a like, center stage for next few years and. It does feel like, despite the fact that they were so unlikable as a team, that they should have, like, this felt very rushed because they were teaming with Dolph Ziggler and a six-man at WrestleMania, and then suddenly by the next interview, oh yeah, they're splitting up and one of them's going to leave. And I think they very much rushed this because Michelle McCool in real life wanted to, to leave wrestling, and then Layla's gone for almost a year because she actually injures herself in this match. Oh yeah, it's the whole... The whole kind of post-match is a disaster. And another question, one person, one wrestler we don't see backstage before the match was actually the Divas champion at WrestleMania that year. It was Eve Torres. Oh, that was our second reign as Divas champion. Like, Eve Torres at this time was vastly underrated. Like, she was so damn good, like, you know, from years prior when she won the Diva search up until that point, you know, she had, like, I think the Trish Stratus effect sort of rubbed off on her a bit, but maybe not as, obviously not to Trish level, but it was, you could tell something was there with, with Eve Torres. And, you know, I think nowadays, is she not teaching like Taekwondo or Judo or something or some sort of self-defense martial art? Some, something like that. Eve Torres' best run when she was the bitch that broke Zack Ryder's heart. The oh, the Hoski. The, the nice. <laughs> that was dumb. That was that was the best stuff ever, uh, but yeah, the kind of the post match of this match is kind of disastrous in history for WWE because, as Scott mentions, like uh, Michelle is retiring, so she goes away. They obviously 
when you see what they did with Layla when she comes back from injury, they obviously were going to position Layla to win the Divas title, and she gets injured. Uh, and then the big angle at the post-match is obviously the debut of Awesome Kong, the Welfare Queen, Karma, <laughs> as obviously they called on WWE. She, uh, Michelle does the thing that most wrestlers do when they leave, is they go out on the back, puts Karma over big style, and then <laughs> a month later, Karma announces she's pregnant and she she wrestles one match in WWE, which is the Royal Rumble. In twenty, is it twenty twelve? Next twenty twelve, yeah, the year Sheamus won. Yeah, which is just it's just a whole disaster. I mean, if if Garma was wrestling all full time, she probably would have won loads of titles there. But the the whole fallout from it's just disastrous, you know. And then we have the summer of of, of Kelly Kelly as champion. Where it takes Beth Phoenix three attempts to to beat her. One of the times she loses is in her hometown. So again, something else that's not a our new trait. There's a there's a big thing people say that the only reason Beth Beth Phoenix is great. I love Beth Phoenix. But a lot of people say the only reason she won that title was because she was dating punk at the time. Eh? She was gonna be punk at the time, eh? Who Kelly or Beth? Beth. Beth. I did not know this. Beth Phoenix was booked absolutely terribly. And then the whole point where Punk becomes the biggest superstar in the company, she gets the title. Damn. She should, have had, she should have had a title a long time ago, but it's out. There's nothing, it's not been confirmed, but it's quite coincidental. It's been, no, confirmed, nobody, it's been confirmed the two of them are dating at the time, but it's a bit coincidental. Nobody, nobody really talks about enough, but Punk gets about, doesn't he? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, you went out with Lita twice. You went out with Maria. You went out with Maria. Uh, obviously, you know, have someone with Kelly Kelly when they were both in ECW. On screen, I I took her from Mike Knox. <laughs> what did somebody who was on? I think he did somebody who was on the WBCW at one point. I don't know. I'm trying to find out. I'm going to find and, gets, out. and then he goes with AJ Mendez. And, and then, well, the thing is, goes from Punk to Edge. Right. Good God, CM Punk has been in relationships with Beth Phoenix, Amy Dumas, obviously later, Maria Kanellis. Uh, Tracy Brookshaw, uh, Mickey James, and a bunch of... Uh, oh, he says, CM Punk had an encounter with Barbie Blake, a.k.a. Kelly Kelly. Oh, well, there you go. So, yeah, as Scott said, he does, he does uh, Mr. Punk. I can, oh, he went out with uh, he went out with Daphne, God rest her soul, at one point as well, I believe. Absolute man whore, that Phil. <laughs> Big Phil, the man whore. <laughs> I think we can say whatever we want about CM Punk. He still blocks us on Twitter. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is a topic about Punk's life. That this is a part of Punk's life that was not covered nearly enough on that CM Punk feature show a few years back. Coincidentally enough, he blocked us before that feature show came out. So I don't know what the hell we did. It was nothing that we said on the feature show. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact that we used the Punk uh, Cold Cabana soundbite on the Punk show, if he hadn't blocked us before, then he probably would have blocked us again. Oh, no, nobody do. Uh, right, so we've got uh, one more match to talk about on the show. It's the match for the WWE Tag Titles. The match was the shortest on the show. Uh, Big Show and Kane defending against the core. My personal thing on this one, it is a creme de la creme of jobbers as uh, Lumberjacks. Um, I 
personal highlight, Byron Saxton wearing wrestling gear. I, I think this was because this was the season four cast of NXT that were basically the the lumberjacks. Because you had yeah, yeah, Byron Saxton, you had uh, Big Connor from The Ascension, you had... Uh, Jacob, Jacob Novak, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> and he, made, he was dressed to look like JTG as well. Then you had Lucky Cannon, who was... Uh, basically, he really good. He was only on season two, and I think they brought a bunch of them from previous seasons back for season five, which is the season that went on for a year before they eventually made it into yeah. NXT, as we used to know it. Uh, Trent Beretta is the weirdest name, probably me, given like how much he's gone on to do outside of WWE. No, 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 no. The weirdest name on the Lumberjacks was David Hart Smith after he split from Tyson Kidd. Like, and he was... This is a cowboy. <laughs> yeah, looking like bloody a cross between JBL and Lance Cade. Like, when I saw the hat, I thought, wait a minute, is JBL a lumberjack? And he's in ring gear. But... I couldn't figure out who was wearing the hat. I My initial thought was Lance Cade, and then I thought, no, he'd passed so, away before this. So yeah, he passed away like two years prior. So it definitely wasn't Lance Cade. Uh, the Trent one was great, because there's a point in it, there's a point in it where um, the big show's out, they're trying to get the big show in, and he just goes, I can't help. <laughs> He's like, no, fuck this, I'm not lifting him. <laughs> Look at it. Look at this. Evan Bourne's on the list. And I, I, in my brain, I looked at this list and seen Evan Bourne. I thought he was still there. Because in 2011, I forgot he won the tag belt, but then he got two suspended twice. Yeah. That's, that was kind of the end of Evan Bourne in WWE. I forget he's still in, I forget he's still in AEW. Uh, Matt Seidel. <laughs> I think he's still banned for a mentor in Japan because in like 2016 he got caught bringing liquid cannabis into the country. What is it with people and bloody cannabis these days? <laughs> these days. These days. Dave, it's been like blooming 16 years since RVD lost the WWE title because he could stop for having weed. <laughs> I was going to say, have you not seen Matt Riddle's any of his work? Yeah, Matt Riddle's recent promos where he keeps teasing that he does we do. <laughs> yeah. they've got a t-shirt oh, that like, says RK, RK bro 420 <laughs> like, oh I, you had me at the word joint bro uh, one of the recent ones on Smackdown going oh I'm in bed I go in my drawers it's like no it's like <laughs> I, get my, I get my headphones out <laughs> uh, I have my laptop <laughs> open I reach into my drawers and pull out <laughs> one, of, one of the best moments I think ever on this podcast is the time that Dave once referred to marijuana as the devil's lettuce. Still better they're talking about this than this fucking match, by the way. Uh, this this, this, this is much one. better banter. Like, and the, bear in mind, I think the core went through about six different versions of their theme song at this point. This was version... This was version six at this point, and then you just like fuck me. Like, how many times is, are they going to redo their theme? Because they change it like every couple of weeks. But it's mad. Oh, really? Like, you know, this was basically announced the day of the show, and you've got the Intercontinental Champion in a less than five minute tag team title lumberjack match with the whole with the rest of the jobbers. It's it's madness. It's mental that this match was done to tease the br- the worst breakup in stable history for the core. <laughs> Because it was like, I know, oh, T- Joe Jackson's this, he's going to be the biggest star we have. And then they give him the IC title and it's like, he has no charisma. <laughs> and only two moves, a clothesline and a scoop slam. Like, big Rick Lon Stevens is like, 
probably one of the worst guys to ever hold the Intercontinental title. And I'm so glad. And we discussed this on the Cody Rhodes feature show. Like, Cody Rhodes defeating Ezekiel for the, not Elias' brother, the big Rick. Uh, Cody winning the Intercontinental title was the best thing that could have happened in 2011. He was the final of our ECW champion. <laughs> Held for like two minutes before the show went off air. I would quietly forget that, forget that happened. Although he goes on WWE, like wins the IC title. He's not deemed good enough to defend it against Cody at SummerSlam, so they haven't lost it on SmackDown. You know, when he leaves WWE, he actually has a decent run in Lutz Underground as a character ironically called Big Rick, who has like an eye patch. And then the start of season two, they imply that one of the top heels on the brand killed them in between seasons. Between, that's a that's a bad sight when you get killed between seasons. It's like they cut you quietly. Yeah, the off-screen death. Inter- interesting uh, of the lumberjacks. Quickly before we round up, uh, only two of the lumberjacks are still employed with WWE. Can you guess them? Byron. Uh, yeah, Byron. Uh, and Titus O'Neill. Yeah, Titus. Oh, what? I, I almost said Heath because he seemed to be there forever. I forgot he's actually an impact now. I just go to how long Heath was there. My f- my favourite lumberjack of this was still Tyler Rex. <laughs> what guy? He he, 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 he could have been a great undercard undercard character. I remember Big T Rex. Mindy. Did he not like make a big comeback in 2010 when he ended up defeating Low Key to get on the SmackDown Bragging Rights team? And that's like the only sort of big, big match he had. Yeah, like for like a month he was treated as like a scary, like big man. And then in 2011, the biggest thing he did was be on that NXT show, forming a tag team with Kurt Hawkins, where they talk about how much they hated Matt Stryker. And literally. And literally, I think the week before they got released, they changed their gimmick to a couple of Chippendales. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that was the tag title match. Kane and Big Show won, by the way. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, they kept. This is one of like like twenty times they threw those two together, so it doesn't fucking matter to be honest with you. Like, you, we, you think we talked on a press pre- uh, feature show about them at WrestleMania twenty two as tag champs? They were better than the tag champs here. Like you thought, buddy, Carlito and Carlito and Chris Masters were throwing together a team to fight them. Like they're but they're still better than Wade and Ezekiel, and one of them was the IC champion. We're certainly better than CM Punk and Mason Ryan. The following pay per view. Oh, absolutely. And then they'd end up losing them on Raw to Otunga McGillicuddy. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, it was that was tr- that was tragic. You talk. You talk about. Two, two of the reformed gladiators were a wrestler. What one was going to be more famous? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because Mason Ryan was like Big Goliath and uh, I think it was season two of the UK, like revived gladiators. But you know, he, he's now in Cirque du Soleil in Vegas. Oh, fair dues. I mean, Nick Aldis is a multiple time NWA champion married to Mickey James. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely doing the best for himself. I mean, we've taken the piss out of Mason Ryan so far in the show, but you know, you'll we'll all feel stupid when he makes his big return, the hometown boy at Clash at the Castle. Hi, <laughs> yeah. That's it, squashes Cody Rhodes. I don't know. Oh, it's it's, it's going to be him or Tegan Knox. I hope it's Tegan Knox. 
or Flash Morgan Webster after he recovers from surgery number 10,000. I think forgot he was still in NXT UK. Some of the people who weren't on this show, by the way, as we talked about earlier on, like Zack Ryder, I think, is starting to gain popularity for his YouTube show. There's some guys in the front row who had several different Zack Ryder-related signs during this show. Yep. And speaking of signs as well, like, there was a couple, like, you know, this is this is going to do the Chris Murray segment, you know, he picks out funny signs from the crowd. I do recall seeing a saltire in the crowd. <laughs> First time I saw it was when Randy Orton made his entrance. Uh... And then there was one about Del Rio, I think it was called like uh, Alberto Del Stinko or something. It looks like he's just wearing a nappy and he shat himself. But the best one I saw was one of Seamus. And it was a picture of Seamus and the sign said, the man who can't tan in Florida. <laughs> well, one of my best sto- uh, stories I heard from Gary Kernan. I don't know if he's told this on the podcast before. He heard the story of uh, Seamus going to Red Square in Russia. and getting Yes. <laughs> I mean, he got sunburnt in February uh, in Russia. One of the coldest countries on the planet. I think it's something. I would always laugh. used to laugh when Seamus would like be in the midst of a match and he started getting his chest would look pink because he'd been getting beaten up and also his skin was that white. And Seamus started looking tired enough. I used to joke to Ross that he looks like chicken that's not cooked quite enough in the middle. Oh. Uh, Seamus looks like salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> The human jar of mayonnaise. Oh, right. So we talk about it, but like um, I missed his old steam song, by the way, which um which I enjoyed here on this show. Oh, lobster, lobster head. head, lobster chest after a match. Class stuff, class stuff. Right, comes to this point. We've talked about all the matches. Now let's give our opinions and say what we think. Let's give our rating out of five for this pay per view. I'm going to go to Scott first. What are you going to go with? I'll, I think I actually enjoyed the show more than I, I thought I would. You know, there's a lot of rematches, sure, but, you know, the stipulations actually added something to them and there was a lot of stuff to enjoy about them. The matches I didn't remember fondly were equally as bad and kind of just cluttered up the show, even though they were fairly short. So, actually, I didn't expect to go this I'm going to give it a four out of five. Interesting. Uh, Dave, what about you? No, I think I agree with uh, what Scott said. I mean, and I, I don't like seeing rematches following WrestleMania, but with the extra stipulation, I think it just sort of adds a new dimension. And it actually, in this case, they were telling really good stories going forward in the coming weeks. And a lot of the matches like over-delivered in a lot of ways, particularly with the stipulations added. Although there were a couple of stinkers, you know, one being the, the tag title match and... Uh, the the country whipping match I suppose was fine for what it was but it's not something I'd want to watch again but so I am going to agree with Scott here and I'm also going to give it a, a 4 out of 5 the country whipping match was good for what it was that's the tagline of the show <laughs> <laughs> for what it was men whipping each other <laughs> one of them's wrapped in bubble wrap uh, me ask a good date in Amsterdam for some people Good night, good night anywhere for some people. Ask Grant McRobbie. Wait, hey. <laughs> oh, sorry, Grant. <laughs> so, um, well, I can fair say Stephen Holmes tag will all be bringing a fair amount of bubble wrap then. <laughs> what stays on the stag? What goes in the stag? Stays on the stag. Uh, I think I'm going to go maybe Dan's going to go three. I think I go three quite a lot of these pay per views. Uh, some couple of good matches. 
the title matches uh, and the Cody Ray match, I think was great. Maybe brought down by the ones we kind of ended the show with. Uh, tag title match didn't need to be there. So yeah, I'm going to go straight to the middle and go free on this particular one. Obviously, our opinions don't matter. It's what you think. Uh, so please, if you've listened to this show, comment on our social medias and tell us what you thought of Extreme Rules 2011. Have you watched it? Have you watched it every week for the past 11 years? If so, get a life. Joking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you have any opinions on anything we've said on the show, please comment on our social medias and give your opinion on this one. And if you've listened to us for the first time, please hit the subscribe button. We've got loads of content on the podcast. We do a feature show every Tuesday. We do our USO ESSR Central every Thursday or Friday, depending on what's going on. Last week's show was definitely out on the Friday because Ross was busy on the Wednesday. Too right he was. Uh, so was I. Uh, and we've also got Saturday Draft Live, which Dave and Scott do rotationally on a Saturday, funnily enough, talking about our fantasy draft. So... Yeah, loads of content coming up. We've got loads of a back catalogue. We've got nearly five years worth of shows. So there is something there you will have liked. Guaranteed. Because we've done shows on everything. Who knows? We might do a show on the final episode of Season 5 of NXT, which saw Kurt Hawkins and Tyler Rex defeated by Percy Watson and Derek Bateman. Oh, yeah. Good oh. <laughs> <laughs> lord. Thank-, <laughs> Thank you to the Kool-Aid man for his... Uh, Contribution there. <laughs> Derek yep. Bateman went back to NXT to try and control his narrative. <laughs> Jesus uh, so yeah, I'd like to thank my panel for this particular show. Thank you to Dave. Thank you. And to Scott, thank you. Thank you. I've been Steve Wilson and we will see you next time. Ta-da. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>